Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about one of the more heart-wrenching experiences of my career. When I had to separate a new mother from her three-day-old baby and take her to the ICU to be intubated. Yep, we're talking about COVID today. Before we dive into the story, I wanted to say a few things about COVID and the toll that it has taken on nurses and really all healthcare workers. So I've been a nurse for 18 years and I'm no stranger to human suffering and emergencies. I actually really love being there for patients and families on the worst day of their life. I feel like God wired me in such a way that I can enter a room full of chaos and fear and bring some clarity and hope. I can share space with those who are suffering. I can be strong for those who are weak. But this most recent wave of COVID has hit us hard here in Florida, and we have all had our resilience tested. Our hospital has been over capacity with COVID patients. Not only have we had more patients than usual, but the ones that we have are sicker than usual. For about two months, I worked almost every day because we just needed more nurses and sicker patients mean more rapid response calls than usual. Our rapid response team has been busting our butts fighting COVID. I intubated more people in that few months than I have the entire year. And it's not been elderly people, it's been young, otherwise healthy people who should not be in the ICU. I've lost coworkers that are younger than me. I held the hand of a young nurse and friend as we intubated him. And I barely had enough time to wipe the tears out of my mask before I had to go back to the next rapid response call. So as we're fighting COVID, we're also grieving and processing so much loss. At one point, I got back to the rapid response office and I literally could not stop crying. I was a mess. We just lost so many patients and I couldn't stop seeing their faces and thinking about the FaceTime calls I had made with their family right before we intubated them. Thinking about the kids who lost their mama, the churches that lost their pastor, the wives that lost their husband, and the parents that lost their child. I had to go home. In the middle of my shift, I had to go home and regroup. I got home, I prayed, I asked for strength to keep fighting for these patients, and I could feel the burnout like a heavy fog just creeping in around me. I was physically exhausted from working so much. I was emotionally spent from giving so much to my patients. My mind was tired from having to be sharp and focused for so many days in a row without rest. I fell asleep praying and slept for two hours. And when I woke up, the fog had lifted and I put back on a fresh pair of scrubs and headed back to finish out the last four hours of my shift. So here's the thing about rapid response nursing. You only see the worst. We respond when patients are crashing, when things aren't going well. No one calls me and says, hey, Sarah, come see how great my patient looks today. They're getting better and they can go home now. So I have to seek out patients who are getting better to remind myself that what we're doing is making a difference. That all those hours I've spent sweating in PPE 
away from my own family is helping someone else. And that's why this dear patient story that we're going to talk about today is so important to tell. Because she did get better, and she went home, and all of our fighting for her was so worth it to reunite her with her sweet baby. So for the sake of her privacy, I'm not going to use her real name. I'm going to refer to her as Andrea, which means strong and brave, because she fought hard to get better. So now let's dive into the story. I get a call from the postpartum floor, which we rarely get rapid responses from the postpartum floor. And they said, Sarah, we have a mother, she's postpartum day three, who's COVID positive, And we keep having to increase her oxygen to keep her stats above 90. The hospitalist is supposed to come see her, but hasn't made it here yet. And we're really worried about her. Can you come look at her? So no rapid response call because her vitals were so stable. We call these nurse consults at my hospital. So I headed to the postpartum floor to see how sick this mama was. As I entered the room, I saw Andrea, a young, healthy-looking new mom in her mid-twenties, laying in the bed with her sweet baby in the bassinet next to her, and her partner, calm on the outside, but I could tell he was really worried about her. I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Sarah from the Rapid Response Team. Your nurse asked me to come see you since you've been needing more oxygen today than yesterday. I saw that she was on 10 liters per nasal cannula, and her SpO2 was 96%, but her respiratory rate was in the 30s, just hanging out in the bed. One thing that I often do to see how sick COVID patients really are is have them reposition in the bed to see how their worker breathing does with activity. So I asked her if I could help her get onto her side to oxygenate a little bit better. She barely started turning, and her SATs dropped into the low 80s and her respiratory rate went up into the 40s. So I switched her to a non-rebreather mask to help her recover and called the RT to get an ABG and called for a stat chest x-ray. While we were waiting for the respiratory therapist to arrive, I talked with her about her baby and she was so in love with the little guy. She was completely awake and alert and kept saying that she felt like she could go home, that she felt fine when she was resting. It was only with activity that she felt short of breath. But she would desat into the 80s just from talking to me. And I knew the ABG was going to be bad and that we we're going to have to separate her from her baby and take her to a different floor. I didn't know if it would be ICU or the step-down unit, but I knew that she was sicker than she was letting on. Then the ABG came back and her PAO2 was 45. For reference, normal PAO2 is 80 to 100 and should actually be higher than 100 for patients on oxygen. So hers was half what it should be. And that was on the nominator breather at 100%. That's when I called my buddy the ICU charge and said, I need a bed for this mama and I need to get on heated high flow, maybe BiPAP as soon as possible. Her pulse ox was maintaining in the mid 90s, but her PAO2 was very concerning. And then her chest x-ray was all whited out. Additionally, she hadn't been sick for that long. So I knew that she hadn't seen the worst of COVID and that she would only get sicker. So while they worked on the bed in the ICU because they were full. I went back and explained to Andrea what, that we needed to move her to the ICU to get her a higher flow of oxygen. She did not like that idea at all, but I showed her a picture of her chest x-ray compared to a healthy x-ray and explained how low her blood oxygen levels really were, and she agreed. It was so hard to watch her say goodbye to her tiny newborn and leave him in the care of his daddy, but I could almost feel something shift in her. She went from just trying to get through the virus and get home 
to this like determine I'm gonna fight this thing mode. I mean, I knew she was afraid and anxious, but she was gonna fight hard to get back to her baby. Once in the ICU, she was quickly placed on the heated high flow nasal cannula and continued to worsen. Overnight, she was switched to BiPAP and still declined and ultimately had to be intubated the next day. They proned her and paralyzed her. I watched Andrea just get sicker and sicker and I wanted her to get better so badly, but she just kept getting worse. We moved her to the ECMO side of the ICU in anticipation of her needing to be cannulated. I visited her every day and held her hand and told her that we were all rooting for her and it was not looking good for a while. And then one day, she just turned the corner. Her PA2 started going up. We were able to wean down the vent settings. They weaned out the sedation. And she woke up and was fully aware of what had happened and was writing notes wanting to know when she could get the tube out and see her baby. One of the greatest joys amidst one of the hardest seasons of my career was when we FaceTimed her partner and she got to see her baby. Now, she was still intubated, so she couldn't speak. So I held the phone up while she wrote notes, and then I read them aloud to her family. Later that day, she was successfully extubated and went home four days later. Yay! What a win! Not only for Andrea and her family, but for me and my rapid response team and every other nurse and respiratory therapist and doctor that had cared for her. We needed that win. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have been with Andrea on what was possibly one of the worst days of her life and to watch her journey and be able to see her get better and go home. We're Facebook friends now, and I reached out to her and asked how she would feel about me sharing her story on my podcast. And her response was, yes, please share it. May it inspire you. And those of you that are new to the profession or less familiar with COVID patients, may you learn what to look for and how to respond when your COVID patient is declining. So let's break down COVID a bit. First, I want to say that this is an ever-evolving science. I mean, what I share with you today in October of 2021 might be completely disproven next month. What we know about the disease and how to treat it changes as new research is published almost daily. And there's still so much that we don't understand about this virus, but I hope to share with you some basic assessment findings and the why behind some of our interventions to help you feel more prepared to provide the best care to this patient population. So the disease itself is essentially a virus that affects many body systems with symptoms and complications ranging from nausea and diarrhea to loss of taste and smell to blood clots and respiratory failure. While most patients who contract uh, COVID-19 improve within a couple of weeks, some continue to have symptoms for months and others become critically ill and many, many have died. It's so hard to predict from when someone initially becomes ill, who will do part poorly and who will do well. And since I have very little experience with those that do well in the outpatient environment, I'm going to stick to what I know, which is the transition between stable and unstable. That's kind of my jam. One thing I did notice from our first waves of COVID compared to the most recent Delta variant is that patients who become critically ill in the first wave had a slower progression towards respiratory failure. You know, I'd see them on Monday escalating their oxygen therapy from low flow nasal cannula to heated high flow, maybe a few days later to BiPAP, and a few days later, maybe intubation. But this wave, patients would be on six liters of oxygen in the morning and intubated by the afternoon. I mean, they got sick so fast. Additionally, 
all of the comorbidities that I had come to associate as predictive for a person's increased risk of a poor outcome, like advanced age or obesity or pre-existing cardiac or respiratory illness, I had to throw all that out the window. Now, young, healthy people were declining quickly from COVID, like Andrea, a very healthy young new mother who should have never had any reason to be on a ventilator. While I have covered this in another podcast on COPD, I wanted to take a few minutes to review the escalation of therapy when it comes to different oxygen delivery modalities. Most COVID patients are in the hospital because they require some level of oxygen therapy. It starts with a simple nasal cannula. As the virus continues to produce more and more secretions and the inflammatory cascade sets in, patients require more and more oxygen. And once you get past a couple liters, it's time to add some humidification to the oxygen cannula. And after six liters or so, you should switch to the special cannula that can tolerate higher flow rates. Once a patient's requiring 12 to 15 liters per minute, it's time to start thinking next steps. While venti masks are an option, I really haven't used them much with this particular patient population for COVID. But when a COVID patient is struggling, either their work of breathing is worsening or their SATs are dropping, the quick fix is a non-rebreather mask. That's the one that has the little bag hanging from the mask. The reservoir fills with 100% oxygen from the wall, and there are valves built into the mask, so the idea is that the patient will get 100% oxygen from the bag and not rebreathe their own exhaled CO2. But in practice, the patient gets more like 60 to 90% FiO2 from the quote-unquote 100% non-rebreather mask. When using the non-rebreather, there are a few common errors that I encounter. First, you have to have it plugged into oxygen with the flow of 15 liters per minute or higher. If you switch to the non-rebreather mask, but keep the flow on the wall flow meter the same, you'll definitely not help improve your patient's oxygenation. Second, the reservoir bag needs to be puffy and full of oxygen to do its thing. If it's flat, well, it's not a non-rebreather mask. So make sure you check that before applying a suffocating mask to your patient's face. And finally, you should not humidify oxygen delivered through the non-rebreather. Adding humidification with a flow greater than 10 liters per minute will cause condensate to build up in the small bore tubing of your non-rebreather or venti mask. Tubing full of fluid cannot function the way that it was meant to. Once you stabilize the patient with a non-rebreather mask, it's time to start thinking next steps. Is my patient weanable off this non-rebreather or is it time to move towards heated high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP? Non-rebreathers should always be a temporary intervention, a bridge to the next step. Like, they buy you time. And I dare say they mask, no pun intended, how sick your patient really is. Especially if you jack up the flow on the wall to flush, that is a lot of flow keeping your patient stable. So you should either be considering what else you can do to optimize their oxygenation, like proning them, steroids, Lasix, or start planning heated high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP or intubation. A great option for COVID patients is the heated high-flow nasal cannula. I really like heated high-flow nasal cannula, but it's kind of cumbersome to set up, so it's not my go-to for a crashing patient. With the high-flow nasal cannula, you can set the flow rate, 20 to 70 liters per minute, and the FiO2 separately, at 21 to 100%. Initially, 
it kind of sucks from the patient's perspective. It's much bulkier than a regular nasal cannula, and it blasts their face with high amounts of oxygen flow. I like to tell them, think of it as a spa for your nose. It's heated and humidified for your comfort. But let's be honest, it's not comfortable. There are several benefits to the heated high-flow nasal cannula. The first being, it's generally well-tolerated and has very few risk or contraindications. Obviously, patients with nasal injuries or nasal packing could have some issues with the high flow going through their nares, but most patients do well with it and for a prolonged period of time. Additionally, patients can eat and talk easily with the high flow nasal cannula, but the biggest benefit of the high flow compared to the regular low flow cannula is that it helps improve both oxygenation and gently supports ventilation. The support of ventilation is achieved through something called dead space washout. We all have anatomic dead space, meaning the gas that occupies the space in the airway that doesn't exchange any gases. So from your mouth, the nose, down to your bronchioles, no gas exchange actually occurs. But the body still has to work to move that gas in and out. Well, with the high flow nasal cannula, air is pouring into the naso and oropharynx. So now what once was dead space occupied by the patient's previously exhaled CO2 is now acting as a reservoir of oxygen. Kind of similar to our non-rebreather mask bag, but better. So when they breathe in, there is less dead space to have to deal with or overcome. And that fresh oxygen in the nasopharynx can make its way down into the alveoli with less effort on the part of the patient. In summary, it replaces a portion of your dead space with oxygen-rich air, hence improving breathing efficiency. And in addition to all that, the high flow provides a little bit of PEEP. PEEP is an acronym for positive end expiratory pressure, or the amount of pressure that the alveoli have after you exhale. So there are several factors that affect how much PEEP and it's not as effective or consistent as the more closed system like BiPAP or an endotracheal tube, but it does provide a little bit of PEEP and a little is sometimes all the patient needs. And for COVID patients who have little to no reserve, you can temporarily increase their flow or their FiO2 with activity and then turn them back down when they are still or resting. If you have maxed out your heated high flow settings to 60 or 70 liters per minute, and the FiO2 is at 100%, and the patient is still working hard to breathe, or their SpO2 is still like sitting in the 80s, or their CO2 is high, well, your next step is BiPAP. BiPAP is the big like Darth Vader mask that attaches to a ventilator-looking machine and basically forces air into the patient's lungs. BiPAP is better than CPAP, the device that people use at home to help them sleep at night with sleep apnea, BiPAP is better because it has two pressure settings, hence the BI part of the title. The respiratory therapist will set an inspiratory pressure, so how much pressure the machine will provide when the patient's taking a breath in, and also an expiratory pressure, or how much pressure it maintains in the alveoli when the patient's breathing out. <sighs> BiPAP is able to provide not only oxygen, but pressure to take some of the breathing workload off your tired patient. The patient determines the respiratory rate, but the BiPAP helps get the air into the lungs with less effort on the patient's part. But this pressure comes at a cost. There are risks 
associated with forcing air into someone's lungs through a closed mask. Lots of patients are not the best candidates for BiPAP. It works best with patients who can participate, are awake enough to be able to pull the mask off their face if they had to vomit, and patients at risk for aspiration or who have recently aspirated should probably not be put on BiPAP. Let's dive a little more into the contraindications because I really want you to think about these before considering BiPAP for your patient. Patients who are somnolent, are difficult to arouse, or carry a high risk of aspiration, think like septic shock or stroke, if you don't think they could protect their airway, maybe they need a more advanced airway, not just BiPAP. But I have used BiPAP on a patient who is drowsy purely from hypercapnia, and we knew this from their history and their current ABG, and those patients, I have put them on BiPAP and watched them perk up within 10 or 20 minutes. But that's the key. I watched them. I stayed with my patient. So if they were to start vomiting, I was right there to get the mask off. So use your assessment skills and your intuition. If your patient can barely hold their head up, maybe they need more than BiPAP. If you're about to take them down to a CAT scan where they have to lay flat for a while, maybe BiPAP isn't the safest. If your patient says they are nauseous or they've been vomiting, don't strap a mask to their face and force air in because if they vomit, the BiPAP machine will help them aspirate that vomit as deep into their lungs. And I hear lungs don't like that. As effective as BiPAP can be, it's only effective if the patient can tolerate it and not everyone can. I totally understand why some patients need some gentle sedation just to comply with the BiPAP. But like I said earlier, don't zonk these people. They have to protect their airway. But a little whiff of fentanyl or even better, a low dose of dexmedetomidine can help take the edge off and help the patient settle into the support of the BiPAP. So how do you know when it's time to escalate intubation? I would say, honestly, it depends on the patient. My first trigger is if the patient just can't tolerate the BiPAP. They're ripping it off their face, even with our sedation of choice, and there's no talking the patient down or helping them work with the BiPAP, and they're still in respiratory distress, eventually they're going to experience diaphragmatic fatigue and respiratory arrest. Ever lifted weights and like for the first 20 reps or so, no big deal. By the time you got to 50 reps, your muscles literally failed and you could not lift the weight anymore. Well, the same thing happens with the diaphragm. It can work for a little while, breathe in 40 times a minute, 50 times a minute, but it can reach a point where the muscle itself, the diaphragm muscle itself cannot keep going. And I don't want the patient to cross that threshold. I'd rather intubate before they get to that point. My second trigger is if the SpO2 or PO2 just isn't improving. Let's say they are tolerating the BiPAP, but their SATs just aren't getting better. Maybe they aren't pulling big enough tidal volumes or taking big, deep enough breaths. Maybe their lungs are just so full of fluid they need even more pressure than the BiPAP can provide to effectively exchange the gases. My final trigger is worker breathing, if that's just not improving. Now, the BiPAP is not an instant fix, but you should see your patient's worker breathing improve within 20 minutes or so. Maybe not down to a rate of 20 breaths per minute, but if you see improvement and they look a little more comfortable, then let the BiPAP keep working its magic. We want to reserve intubation as our last option because the mortality of patients with COVID who have to become intubated is very poor. But 
you know, if we've given our COVID patient everything we have and they are still working hard and not improving and their stats are dropping or they're getting too tired, it's probably time to intubate. Speaking of giving patients everything we have, we've tried several medications to help improve COVID patient outcomes and the studies have proven and disproven so many of them. So I don't want to delve into the medications today. But what we do know for sure is that proning patients improves gas exchange. And I have seen it with my own eyes time and time again. Patients satting in the mid 80s and you flip them on their belly and suddenly their SpO2 improved to 95%. It's pretty amazing actually. But why does that work? Well, several reasons. The primary one is that our lungs are shaped kind of funny anatomically to house the heart in the center. So the front of the lungs are kind of pointy and thin, and the back of the lungs is the widest, thickest portion of the lung. So when we lay COVID patients on their backs, all that fluid drains to the back of the lungs because of gravity, but we are filling our most valuable real estate with fluid, which prevents effective gas exchange. But when we flip patients on their bellies, the fluid drains to the front of the lungs and opens up more alveoli in the back to exchange the gases. There's also the added benefit of taking some of the weight off the lungs from the belly, but mostly it just comes down to gravity. If you can't get the patient on their belly, maybe due to body habitus or a back injury or just the patient's pure stubbornness, at least convince them to lay on their side and to rotate every few hours. I would tell patients it's time to rotisserie. Being on their back may be the most comfortable for them, but it's the worst position for a COVID patient. If you were to walk the halls of my ICU a month ago, every patient that wasn't cannulated for ECMO was on their belly to optimize gas exchange. Okay, so you've tried proning. You've escalated all the way to BiPAP and you're maxed out on your pressure settings and your FiO2 is 100% and the patient is still struggling to breathe or barely maintaining their SpO2. At that point, your only option is to intubate. Intubation allows us to control the patient's ventilations and can provide the best PEEP. And there are several settings to help us recruit alveoli, meaning pop open the fluid-filled or flat air pockets in the lungs. And you can ensure a consistent tidal volume of air and even bleed certain medications into the lungs to help open things up. It also gives you easy access to do a bronchoscopy on these patients. And since thick secretions and clotting are one of the side effects of COVID, this can be very helpful to get in there and kind of clean things out. And if you have intubated and adjusted the vent settings and maxed out everything you can on the vent and the patient is still not getting a good PO2, then the last option for these patients is ECMO. Now, ECMO is super risky and very labor intensive. It requires a lot of resources both the resource of highly trained staff and the financial cost is very high to provide ECMO. So we don't just do it for everyone. The criteria is very strict. Basically, only young and otherwise healthy people are candidates for ECMO. Even having a BMI that's too high would make someone not a candidate because we know that obesity worsens your chances of survival from COVID. But there were many patients who met the criteria for ECMO but never got a chance to receive it because the therapy is so highly specialized and ECMO machines and facilities that can provide it are quite limited. 
In summary, ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. The patient gets two very large cannulas inserted through their neck to access their bloodstream. The ECMO machine pulls the blood out and oxygenates it for the body, allowing the lungs, who cannot do that effectively, to rest and hopefully heal. But so many things can go wrong with ECMO, from bleeding to clotting to injury of the vessels. I could go on and on. But for some people, it gives them a second chance at life. So let's summarize because I've talked about a lot. How do you know things aren't going good for your COVID patient? Well, look at their work or breathing. Observe how tired they look. How are they mentating? How's their color? When I walk in and see a COVID patient who looks wiped and is tachypnic in the 30s or 40s or higher, I sound the alarm. If they were previously awake and alert and now they're drowsy or confused, I'm pretty concerned. And if they look dusky or diaphoretic, I am getting all hands on deck because COVID patients decline quickly. I've cared for so many patients who were awake, awake enough to talk to their family via FaceTime one minute and then unresponsive the next. And if they get to where they can't speak in full sentences, they're only spitting out a few words at a time, they definitely need more support. I wish I could tell you that every COVID patient looks exactly the same, but they just don't. Some signal to me that it's time to intubate because they go from talkative to somnolent. Some were pink and become dusky. Some are just breathing too darn fast and I know it's not sustainable and they're going to go into respiratory arrest. So use your assessment skills and your intuition. Don't just look at the monitor. I've intubated people whose SpO2 was in the 90s because the patient in the bed looked much worse than what the monitor was reflecting. You know your patient more than anyone, so if you notice a change, speak up and tell someone. And then do everything you can to optimize them. Find a way to get them on their belly, even if it takes 10 pillows. You know, obviously escalate from your simple nasal cannula to the non breather mask if you need to buy some time. Try the heated high flow if appropriate or BiPAP if they're candidates for it. But don't wait for your patient to give out. Get them on the radar of your rapid response team or your ICU team before they crash. And if you notice that the patient is requiring more and more oxygen, find a way to let their family see them while they're awake and tell them how much they love them. Some of the patient's faces that I still can't get out of my head are the ones that crashed so fast that the family didn't get to say goodbye. It's heartbreaking even now, months later, thinking about it. Let your patient know that you are fighting for them. Let the family know that you are fighting for their loved one. And don't be afraid to be annoying to get your patient what they need. In sharing Andrea's story on this podcast, I hope to accomplish a few things. One, to educate nurses on the disease progression of COVID and what interventions to anticipate based on the patient's signs and symptoms. Second, to pull back the curtain just a smidge to share some of the emotional toll this pandemic has had on all of us healthcare workers. And finally, to remind us all of the humanity behind what we do. Nursing is a science as much as it is an art. Yes, we have to be sharp and have good assessment skills, but knowing what medical intervention to do is only half of what we have to offer our patients. They need to know that we care, that we are invested in their health, and that we are fighting for them. The day that I went to visit Andrea and we turned off her sedation, one of the first things she wrote to me was, you got me through this. Thank you.
That's what we do. We get people through. Whether it's through to discharge home or through to transfer to the eternal care unit, we walk with patients through that journey. So nurses, I know you must feel beaten down, whether you're a COVID nurse or not, but hold your head high and be proud of what we do for our patients. Let us look past the task of nursing and see the human soul that we are caring for. Let us keep fighting for these patients to get better. Let us not grow weary in doing good, but instead take time to recognize the beauty that we get to bear witness to every day. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.